You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our passage for this morning's sermon is Mark 8, verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this point in the service where we open the word of God and we sit under its authority and we sit under your voice, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work. Give us humility as we hear. Help us to respond in faith. This is a weighty text. These are the words of Jesus telling all those who wish to follow him exactly what that will cost and exactly what that means. So, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning and hearts to receive it in Christ's name. Amen. William Borden was born in 1887, and he was born into a very wealthy family. In fact, many of you will recognize that name, and and maybe you're even wondering if I'm talking about the Borden Dairy Company, whose logo is a cute little cow named Elsie. I am. When William was young, his mother became a Christian and regularly shared the gospel with him, and he put his faith in Christ. When he graduated high school, his parents, who had the means to do this, gave him a trip around the world. It was during this trip that William, overwhelmed by the lostness of the people he encountered, sensed a call to take the gospel to the nations. After graduating from Yale, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and studied under J. Gresham Machen. When he finished seminary, he joined the China Inland Mission and began to prepare to go to China. He had found out about a Muslim people group in China numbering almost 10 million, and he set his sights on reaching this particular group for Christ. In December of 
1912, William set sail for China. On March 21st, he found out that he had spinal meningitis. And just 19 days later, he died. Never making it to China. Theologian and church historian Stephen Nichols suggests that we should remember two things about Borden's legacy. The first is his will. In his will, he left his entire fortune, well over $1 million, to Christian causes. But he also put in his will this specification. This money was to go to missionaries and teachers who are sound in the faith, believing in such fundamentals as the doctrine of divine inspiration and authority of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, including the deity of Christ, and the doctrine of the atonement through the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The other piece of his legacy is his Bible. When he died, his Bible was returned to his parents. When they opened it, they saw on the flyleaf these words written by William. No reserves. Those words were written over the date when he decided that he would not take up a role in the family business, but he would become a missionary. At a later date, he wrote these words, no retreat. And then during his illness after March 21st and shortly before his death on April 9th, he wrote these words, no regrets, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. This is the life of William Borden. For the vast majority of those who would hear the story of William Borden, they would believe he is an example of a tragically wasted life. Or they might claim more simply that he lost everything. But friends, those responses would be wrong. William Borden serves as a wonderful illustration of what it means to sincerely and authentically follow Christ. To follow Christ is to find him altogether satisfying. To reach the end and to know that if you have Christ, then you have what matters most. To put it plainly, as the Puritan Richard Sibbs would say, the truly fulfilled life is the one that can declare with confident joy, Christ is best. This is why Borden could write in his Bible, by faith, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Last week, we began walking through Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38, and I, I told you this, if you're going to follow Jesus and find in him true satisfaction, you must answer three questions correctly. Three questions that William Borden had settled long before his death. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? 
And what is Jesus worth? Who is Jesus? In verse 29, Peter gave us an accurate answer to this question when he announced to Jesus, you are the Christ. In this, Peter affirmed what we all must affirm. Jesus is the Christ, the one sent from heaven. Very God and very man, he is the promised Messiah. Who is Jesus? He is who he claimed to be. A second question that you must answer, what has Jesus done? Peter and the disciples were directed by Christ to look forward, even as we now look back. Jesus is the one the Old Testament prophets spoke of. He is the son of man who came to suffer rejection and suffer death. But Jesus is also the promised king who receives and will reign over an everlasting kingdom. But this kingdom will be established not through political triumph, but through death and resurrection. The disciples needed to understand what Jesus would do, and we must understand now what Jesus has already done. Again, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What has Jesus done? He has gained victory over sin and death through suffering and resurrection, and he has therefore done everything necessary to reconcile sinners to a holy God. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? Now, what is Jesus worth? In answering this final question, I want to give you three words to consider. Three words. Surrender suffering, and satisfaction. Surrender, suffering, and satisfaction. Let's read the text again and remember the question we're seeking to answer. What is Jesus worth? Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What Jesus has been teaching the disciples isn't just for them, but it's for the crowds as well. So Mark tells us that Jesus gathers everyone around you see, friends, each person doesn't decide for himself or herself what it means to follow Jesus. No, Jesus determines for all people in all places and for all time what it means to follow him. I think this is an important reminder to all of us. Last week, I mentioned the danger of rejecting the true identity of Jesus and crafting Jesus in your own image according to your own preferences or according to public opinion. We can do the same thing with following Jesus. 
we can adopt the errant mindset that there are many different ways to follow Christ. You do what works for you, I'll do what works for me, and we'll all be fine as long as we're sincere. Oh, friends, this text dismantles that kind of thinking, and it exposes it as deadly wrong. Let's hear from Jesus as he tells us what it means to follow him. The first word, again, to consider, surrender. Surrender, verse 34, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Jesus isn't speaking in a parable here. His words are plain and clear for all to understand. To be a follower of Jesus is first to surrender fully to him. He must become your Lord and master. To be blunt, you're not in charge anymore. You willingly and gladly surrender control of your life to the Lord Jesus. There's a great snapshot of this earlier in Mark's gospel. Uh, Though the disciples didn't fully grasp all that following Jesus would entail, turn back to Mark chapter 1. Turn back to Mark chapter 1. And look at verse 18. Actually, back up to verse 16. Mark 1. Look at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. This is a wonderful picture of complete surrender. Fishing is what Simon and Andrew knew. It's what they were trained to do. This was their vocation. There wasn't another plan. But when Jesus called them, they left their nets and followed him. When they laid down their nets, they laid down their plans. They surrendered everything. To Jesus, it's as if they're saying to Jesus, okay, we trust you. You're in charge now. We've laid down our past dreams and personal desires. Jesus, we have abandoned everything and we are now yours completely. Friends, this is the essence of faith. It's trust. If you believe in Jesus, that means you trust him. You're willing to give up everything to follow him. I fear that far too many people believe that becoming a disciple of Jesus means adding Jesus as a life accessory but it doesn't entail a life of abandonment to him. 
this person wants Jesus as long as they don't have to give up too much. In vain, this person will try to redefine the demands of Jesus and rewrite his terms so that they're more palatable. Danny Aiken describes this call to self-denial when he writes that we must give up the right to self-determination. Live as Christ directs. Treasure and value Jesus more than yourself, your comforts and your aspirations. Listen, put to death the idol of I. Say no to you and yes to Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to say no to you and yes to him. When you see who Jesus is and when you grasp what Jesus has done and you turn to him in faith, you are surrendering everything to follow him. We sing a song that powerfully communicates the sense of surrender that Jesus calls his followers to. And in fact, we sang it just last week during the final time of communion. We lifted our voices together and, and we sang, all I have is Christ. And in it, we express these words. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. To follow Jesus is to surrender everything, believing that he is worth it. This brings us to our second word, suffering. Suffering. Verse 34 again, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, most understand the meaning of deny yourself. It may be more difficult to understand Jesus's Next phrase, take up your cross. This is the first mention of the cross in Mark's gospel. And while Jesus has referred to his own suffering and death, those hearing his words would probably not have considered that he might die by means of crucifixion. To give some historical context, one New Testament commentator writes, Jewish authorities usually executed by stoning although on some occasions Jewish rulers did execute by crucifixion. Roman authorities carried out death penalties by decapitation, burning alive, throwing victims to the beasts in the arena, and poisoning. Crucifixion was reserved for the execution of slaves, bandits, and rebels, and in the case of Roman citizens, for high treason. The expression, take up your cross, or take up the cross, 
refers to the practice of criminals condemned to crucifixion, carrying to the place of execution the heavy horizontal beam or crossbar to which their outstretched arms would be eventually attached with nails and ropes. This was then hoisted up on a post so that the criminal could be exposed to the public until he died. Friends, why would Jesus use the image of taking up your cross in relation to following him? On one level, he is simply emphasizing again who he is and what he will do to follow Jesus is not to sign on with a celebrity healer who is moving from village to village, staying in the nicest hotels, traveling by the most comfortable means available. No, to follow Jesus is to walk with him down a path marked by rejection and ridicule and suffering. Think about the picture. Again, as part of the Roman judicial system, if we can call it that, crucifixion was reserved for slaves, rebels, and citizens convicted of high treason. In other words... To have a cross beam placed on your shoulders and then to walk toward your place of execution, this was not something you would desire. The streets would not be lined with adoring fans. Quite the opposite. You you would be ridiculed and rejected. People would look upon you with disdain and disgust. Brothers and sisters, those, those of you who have turned in repentance and faith to follow Jesus, this is the life you've been called to. This life. The life of carrying a cross, of identifying with Jesus. If this is true, then why? And I include myself in this. Why are we so surprised when we are ridiculed and rejected, when our Christian beliefs are mocked and maligned? Christianity was never supposed to be a means of gaining broad social acceptance or widespread popularity. In fact, it was Diedrich Bonhoeffer who said, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him Come and die. Notice that after Jesus tells all who are gathered before him that if they are going to follow him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross, he then issues those two words again. Follow me. 
to be crystal clear, no one has the option of negotiating new terms. If you are going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, if you're going to follow him by faith, you will follow him on his terms or you will not follow him at all. I think at this point we're left asking, is it worth it? Or more specifically, is, is he worth it? Jesus, the one who calls, follow me, is he worth it? Is Jesus worth the surrender? Is he worth the suffering? Well, this brings us to the third word I want you to consider. And this is the final one, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Does this call to follow Jesus, a call to total surrender and certain suffering, does this call come with a promise of any kind? To put it more directly, and it's the major question we're seeking to answer this morning, is following Jesus worth it? Is he worth the surrender? Is he worth the suffering? Well, look with me at our text. And in particular, from here to the end, especially young adults and high school students, this, I think, is the question you will be most attacked with. The world all around you wants you to answer this question, is Jesus worth it, with a resounding no. So please listen. Beginning in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's questioning what's most important to you. Is your greatest treasure your own life? And when I use the word life, I'm talking about more than your mere existence. I'm, I'm asking you this. Is your greatest treasure this life and all that comes with it? The things which Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount as able to be destroyed by moth and rust and the things which can be stolen by thieves. Friend, if this is what you treasure most, this life and all that comes with it, then you are declaring that this life and everything in it is of ultimate worth. You're saying, I don't care what it costs me, it's worth it. Well, according to this text, Jesus would tell you 
that you're a fool. Because when you die, and you will, when you die, you will not only lose everything you treasure, but you will find out that it cost you your soul. What's the alternative? What's the alternative? If by faith you trust in Jesus and you treasure him, if you live this life pursuing contentment and satisfaction in Christ, enjoying all that he's created and delighting in his good gifts as a means of grateful worship, if you spend your life pouring it out for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, then as the Apostle Paul testified, dying, dying will not bring the terrifying realization that you were a fool but it will bring the exhilarating joy of standing in the presence of the one who will satisfy you eternally. Paul said it this way, dying will be gain. If living is Christ, dying is gain. If living is for this life and everything in it, then dying is the loss of everything, including your soul. You see, the surrendering and the suffering is the only path that will lead you to true and lasting satisfaction. There isn't another way. You can believe that. It's what Jesus says. You can trust him. Or you can believe the lie. That satisfaction is not found in Christ. That he and his words should not be trusted. And to be sure, you will enjoy fleeting pleasure in this life. But when death comes, you will lose it all. And you will spend all eternity. all eternity experiencing not satisfaction in Christ, but the wrath of God. Now, how does Jesus end this clarifying call to the gathered crowd? Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Please, please hear this. Brothers and sisters, this is not, this is not a warning to the Christian who at times lacks the courage to speak up or struggles to witness to unbelievers. This is not meant to terrify the Christian who loves Jesus but battles fear. That's not the audience of this verse. This is a warning to the one who is embarrassed by the words and works of Christ. 
the one who so deeply covets worldly respect and affirmation that no one would ever know he or she claims to be a Christian. This is the one whose greatest fear is not to be rejected by Christ, but to be rejected by the world. This is the one who will do anything, who will do anything to avoid becoming an outcast or an outsider in this life. Friends, what I just described, this is not how Jesus defined what it means to follow him. And like I said before, you cannot renegotiate his demands or redefine the terms he's established. Either you will follow him by faith or you will walk the way of the fool and it will lead to eternal destruction. As we try to put the pieces of this final point together, I want you to hear something I read from John Piper. I think he quite masterfully captures the weighty message of these final four verses. This is lengthy, but please listen carefully. Piper writes, suppose your heart considers the worth of Jesus and considers the worth of possessions the gladness you could have in Jesus versus the gladness you could have in possessions. And suppose your heart is drawn to prefer possessions, which is what is happening to billions of people. Suppose your heart is drawn to prefer the worth of possessions and you turn away from Jesus and you embrace as superior to Jesus all that earthly possessions can give you. And suppose you succeed. All your life you succeed. Nothing but success. And by the end of your life, suppose you own everything. The world just everything, not just Apple and Google, but mobile oil and every other company. All of it is yours. You call all the shots. You own them all. That's what Jesus means, right? When he says that you gain the whole world and then you die and instantly you realize it was suicide. It was eternal suicide. And suppose, facing Jesus, you say, I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything I have. I own it all. I'll give you everything, the whole world, in return for my soul. What do you think he will say? I think he will say this. 
you would try to buy your soul with the very possessions that destroyed your soul? The very possessions that you preferred over me? Christ replacing, Christ belittling idols have no currency in heaven. He will turn his face away and you will perish forever. Friends, that could be your story. Or something like that. Or, or your story could be something like William Borden's. As you follow Jesus by faith, believing that he is to be supremely treasured, believing that he is infinitely satisfying, you may suffer and struggle And you may give away worldly riches or lose out on them altogether. And your life might be marked by rejection and scorn. But you will not have lost your soul. And you will have gained Christ. And by sustaining grace and the strength of the Holy Spirit, the testimony you leave behind could be this. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth the surrender. He's worth the suffering because he alone will satisfy you. No reserves no retreat, no regrets. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray.